The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. to Elizabeth who is still in Dortmund in Germany and it's a very surprisingly nice weekend in October and I'm sitting here today with Robin Chang also from Technical University in Dortmund who is a um, I'm a research associate and lecturer at the or within the Department of European Planning Cultures and I've been there um, since 2015 in this capacity and two years before that for my master's. And your topic is temporary urbanism. That's correct. Temporary urbanism, temporary land use, um, tactical urbanism, yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at uses that happen um, on sites not according to the zoned uses that um, also last for a um, time frame that is not intentionally permanent um, and in most cases kind of spontaneous as well um, in terms of how they initialize. Mm-hmm. And you have how many case studies? At this point, I have five case studies in uh, the city of Rotterdam, and the aim is to compare these five case studies with five German case studies in the city of Bremen. In Bremen, I only have two at this point, but I will get more later on as time progresses. And the context for choosing Rotterdam and Bremen, in both cases, these are industrial cities that are... That's correct. They're post-industrial, yeah. I was um, inspired by a lot of what I had seen... um, and got to know when I moved to Dortmund, which is that in um, the aftermath of post-industrial transition, um, restructuring uh, urban shrinkage, as well as, so there was an increase in urban shrinkage and uh, an increase in vacancy as well as brownfield sites. And so municipalities as well as communities had to find ways to kind of activate these sites or um, in a sense kind of infill the, the types of uses on them. Um, and it was really interesting because in most cases the uses that occurred on these sites would, would not comply to the zoned uses. Mm. Um, so that mean they got in trouble as well? Well, they, they should have, but mm. they, they didn't. Um, so in a sense you could say that it was illegal, but it wasn't. I, w- I would say um, now that I've worked with the topic a little bit more that these uses are, are extra legal because they're sanctioned in, in, or they're accepted or um, they're welcomed in, in many cases, mm-hmm. especially because they are very, like, they're very low cost and, and um, tactical strategies that uh, are easy for community citizens to engage in in most cases. So um, when I talk about temporary use, I'm talking about everything from tactical urbanism to pop-up shops Mm -hmm. to um, food market stands um, to big collectives of uh, squatters. But in my specific research, I I found that the unit of analysis is a lot easier to look at at the collective level. Mm -hmm. When you look at um, the individuals at the very micro level, um, there there isn't a tendency to to institutionalize, at least not in terms of like a perpetual use. It might become more like an annually repeated event, Mm -hmm. Um, but there isn't that 
significant permanency that, that you have uh, with collectives and organizations of temporary users. Is there an existing typology of the kinds of uses that are temporary or what kinds of... Yeah, there, there definitely is a typology. So um, I can probably, I think it is easier to start off with literature that talks about it. So um, the Urban Catalyst, um, which is a studio based in Berlin, they actually, back in um, the early 200s, uh, 2000s, they researched um, temporary uses in, in Berlin and lots of European, other European countries, and they have everything from pop-up shops to, uh, like, parking day, oh, no, wait, parking was more of a recent phenomenon, but um, uh, ephemeral cafes or, or um, bars. Um, and then there's also been more recent research by Lynn um, and his team based in uh, the U.S., and they've looked more at tactical, so strategically, I guess, strategically um, planned or, or used for, for activating public spaces, so parking day, in that case is more of a fitting type of uh, use. And your five sites in Rotterdam, what are they uh, used for or temporarily used for? So there's a range of, um, of uses that we have. Um, the first one I'm looking at is uh, more of a creative space, creative entrepreneurial space, um, or a collection of spaces. So it's actually a collection of buildings within a neighborhood, and they're mostly artists, there's a beekeeper, uh, architects, cafe owners, uh, so gastronomy owners, um, and a second site um, is one building within the inner city that uh, was squatted by two architects that has now been filled with basically uh, creative industry, so tech, um, design, um, and also yeah, urban architecture. Um, the third one is a food market. They also have a bookstore as well as like a kind of mini kind of co-working space for events. Um, and the fourth is uh, a housing, so it's a squatting collective, it's a housing project. And then the last one is um, an industrial maker space. Mm-hmm. And are any of these sites, or what's the role of the city in this? Do they encourage them, sanction them, try to shut them down? The city's role in all the sites is either as passive property owner um, or they kind of are passive buy centers that just um, guide property owners in, in the development of some of these uses. So the first site, for instance, is not owned by the city, but it's owned by a housing corporation. However, the city was uh, aware of this, um, what, what the housing corporation termed slow urbanism development um, using temporary use. The second site, the city didn't own the property, but ended up actually taking over the property when the developers went bankrupt. So they acquired the property and definitely were there from the beginning. Uh, they knew about what was happening. Um, the third property is owned by the city for sure and was a top-down temporary use project that was meant to kind of create economic as well as socio-cultural spin-offs for um, lofts that were being built in the area. And the third one is not owned by the property, but they're aware of it. So they actually advise the property owner to cooperate with the users. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last one is owned by the city as well. And um, they were definitely passive. So they had the users, um, the businessmen approach them. really interesting because it was up until the financial crisis um, a city that was booming Um, it's a port city that has benefited a lot from oil so natural resources um, in the last few years but at the same time it's also been a very um, architecturally and urban design wise very experimental city Um, and I think that 
comes from, it's influenced by a few things. Um, one of the first major reasons uh, is that uh, after the Second World War, there was a very intentional um, directive to not necessarily rebuild in old architectural style, so they, they wanted to create um, a mix of modern as well as old within the city. And so that um, was very progressive, but it also allowed, it created basically room for discussion about how, how urban development should look and in what process that that manifestation should should occur. Rotterdam had basically, a, so back to my track before um, the financial crisis, um, was going through a bit of a boom and um, developing like crazy, but when it was hit by the financial crisis, a lot of development projects either stopped um, and went bankrupt or uh, kind of paused. Um, but for the various bankrupt projects that um, didn't continue, the city had to take over quite a few of the sites. So they, they purchased the sites um, and then had to find some way to manage them. And in the aftermath of this kind of failed development or, or weakened development, temporary use was used by not only the municipality but some of, I would say, development corporations or housing corporations, um, so kind of higher level or, or like regional level um, organizations as a strategy as well for, for development. And the idea was that it was inexpensive, so they wanted to capitalize on this very affordable um, tactic, but that they thought it would be a great way to include citizens, especially very entrepreneurial and creative citizens, which Rotterdam has, is filled with, they have a history. Mm -hmm having lots of creative people there. And yeah, they continued doing that um, from about 2008 up until now. But recent changes in some of the federal policy, so specifically housing policy, um, has basically mandated that some of these housing corporations and other municipal agencies no longer can include commercial developments in, in or portfolios at all. So they have to sell off these properties um, or they have to find some way to make it um, profitable um, and those agencies that were managed to focus on, on housing or social housing they can only work on that now. Any of their agencies that have development oriented portfolios um, for, for properties they have to get rid of them so essentially they have to sell off all of the sites and their rationale is that you know we're using we're losing taxpayer dollars um, through these losses and we don't want to encourage it. Um, the irony is of course that when they sell off these sites, they're also essentially not securing the um, long-term temporary use of um, these creative users. And these creative users, are, it sounds like in some cases in Rotterdam, being used to promote Rotterdam or it's a kind of had a catalyst effect on the surrounding area. Oh, so. for sure, yeah. Um, the second um, project, second and third project, for instance, was Hriblok as well as Phoenix Food Factory. Um, are featured in public media, The Lonely Planet, so t tourist guides. Um, and in, in general, the, the dynamic in Rotterdam is that it's the new place to be. Like It is better than Amsterdam. Um, and it's kind of interesting because you talk to people who've lived there for a long time or people from Rotterdam, they're a little bit confused about all of the, the attention. Um, but it's definitely because of the, I, I would say, arch artistic as well as um, cultural spin-offs of what's happening um, from the aggregate of all these sites and, and just the energy. Mm -hmm. So to, to stop it or, or to slow down some of these like these, ish, these initiatives is just kind of backwards. It's a little bit um, perhaps unintended. So there's some good intentions, but it's yeah, yeah. definitely. I think uh, when it comes to from like with regards to the federal level policies, that's just a challenge that they 
they have to accept. And the general feeling that I had from a lot of the interviews, as well as those working in the housing corporation, is that politically there's a lot of internal uh, turmoil mm -hmm. because they realize that this is not something that is healthy for their city um, and in fact they should be encouraging it but at the same time there's a lot of developmental pressure that they, they have to find other ways to solve and it, it means that they have to be pragmatic about how they how they run their properties run and manage their properties um, yeah and in addition to that there's also um, new policy directives to focus on creating more housing, more affordable um, and diverse housing formats for young, uh, young working class as well as young families because of this positive attention that Rotterdam's received in the last few years. I'm fascinated by the context of industrialism and how planned a lot of it was. So I'm thinking about the rural. I don't know so much about the plan, but I know Christian said something offhand that they had planned for double the population they have because the industry was the plan and now the industry is not gone, but didn't work out how they expected it. So the role of the planner or thinking ahead and permanency when the lesson of what are the lessons learned from you know, planning for 100 years in advance and then everything changes because of the economy. When you look at temporary uses, how do planners, does it, how do the people think about the future now? They just think they don't, they have no idea. I think that's something that planners are struggling with and to be honest, I even struggle with that um, as a researcher um, working in this field because it, it does go contrary to how you have to think long term. But something that's kind of developed um, through all of the discussions I've had with Tapper users and also through a lot of the literature I've read and um, discussions with other researchers is that it's not impossible to have long-term planning, but in parallel also sites or areas where you have mixed uses that are flexible that are short-term. Um, the challenge is maybe how, how do you Number one, how do you spatially divide it? Can you create like multiple pockets within an area where you allow that, or or do you like switch them around? Um, um, do you make it uh, a policy that you know any any property owners of big sites who are going to leave it standing empty for the next ten years that they have to allow the municipality to, to do something on it? Um, so, so the will to, to develop that kind of policy and then push it or, or um, convince, maybe not push it, but convince developers to, to work with it. There, there's that piece. And then there's also this other piece about how is it that we have to maybe think, think of different ways in terms of working with um, short-term investments because it's, it's, just not, it's just not possible to plan for 10, 20 years anymore. Um, so that the planning field, if you will, as well as the role of the planner in general, is it's changing. So in a, in a long-winded fashion, I guess, what I'm trying to say is that post-industrial regions are probably um, at, at the cusp of trying to deal with this, this new change in what planning is um, compared to other cities where they've kind of probably are not dealing with this um, so much because they, they have other developmental pressures or they have other industries to, to count on. But they may face the same challenges one day. Yes, yeah. definitely. They're just maybe 20 years behind. Yeah. That we are all Detroit. We are all Detroit and we will all be destroyed. We will all be unemployed. We are all Stories are embroiled, we will be reborn.
And these, the temporary uses, what are the key differences? Say, if you had the difference between the kind of developer or infrastructure that was going to develop that site when it was all gangbusters growth and the people that are attracted to a temporary use, are they completely different people, completely different motives? Someone that's going to set up a, a workshop in a, an old factory? Um, I, th- I would say they're... Yes, it was. It's changing, though. Um, so the the younger urban development agencies or firms that are smart, that are clever, they're starting to realize that temporary users and entrepreneurs have something, or or they bring a different dynamic, and they're actually a little bit, if you if you think about it, financially clever choices in terms of developing sites, right? Because they're inc- incremental. Um, they're, well, they fragment uses when it comes to like. Um, when you're looking at a collection of properties in, in a block, for instance, um, but it means that it's easier to phase development, and you don't have to you don't have to push that. It's it's what the temporary users want. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's really interesting because there are still urban development firms that have this very old mentality about you knock down and build new and we would we'd rather build a whole new office building and rent it out to a a big firm as opposed to all these little temporary users because it's just too complicated to manage them however I think they're they're starting to lose um, support and some of these newer development firms are yeah they're becoming the more resilient um, actors in um, urban development in Rotterdam. With temporary uses, do the people, I guess the entrepreneurs, do they go in with a, a long-term vision of being permanent or they just see the opportunity now? I think there, there's a range of, of commitments to what, what they can do, but most of them don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that I, I'm not quite surprised about and something that I proved along the way, I guess. It was a hunch that I was working on through my, my research that essentially the types of personalities, the entrepreneurs and the creative people who are willing to experiment, they live with experimental experimentalism, risk. It's an everyday thing. And so the notion that something might not last forever for them is it's just something they live with. And so they go into a lot of these projects thinking, you know, it's great if I can get something out of it. It's great if I can um, benefit the community in some way. Um, but they also have this very um, pragmatic sense of if if I have to sign a contract that is, you know, for two years, I would actually prefer not to. Yeah. Because they are purposefully experimenting and testing out new ideas. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I found interesting um, because it it kind of is a dichotomy to the whole notion of temporary users and, and collectives. And, um, it also means that when you're when you're looking at temporary users involved in projects where they want to institutionalize, it means they have to reconceptualize what they're doing um, and how they're doing it. So in most cases, a lot of the temporary users who do stay in collectives that want to commit to something more long term, they they've matured, they've become really successful with their initiatives and endeavors, and it makes sense for them not to give up the idea, or at least it makes sense for them to develop it to a point where it's profitable and they can sell it off. Mm-hmm. So for instance, in the Phoenix Food Factory, that happened with a lot of the gastronomic um, initiatives there, or there was also a, a bookstore there, uh, they either develop this idea, this bookstore, and realize, okay, we like it, um, kind of more specific, tailored, um, indie bookstore concept store, let's make it run permanently now. Um, and the case with for the food market, 
for the, the cafe, the, the coffee roasters, they were so successful they sold it all together. Mm. Um, but they're not the sort of people that would have gone to a bank and got a loan and a 10-year business plan to start an indie bookshop and then sell it off. No, yeah. which is why they actually love temporary use because it was, for them, a low-risk way of... Uh, yeah, being entrepreneurial. So, from the case studies you've done so far, and I know you still haven't done the, the Bremen or the German studies, what are the, some of the lessons? Do you think these things can be replicated elsewhere? Should they be replicated? Is there a kind of rule book for these temporary uses, or yeah. are we just reacting? Um, I think that um, there's a, there already are lots of resources, rule books, if you will, um, for implementing temporary use projects them off. The problem now is uh, for the temporary users that are successful, so how there's no rule book as to how to negotiate with um, number one, the municipality, number two, property owners, and also then later on um, develop their own know-how, in-house know-how and expertise, so, so legal as well as um, financial in-house and expertise to manage themselves. So that's still a huge gap or vacuum that needs to be filled. Um, when it comes to temporary use, I think it's very repli replicable. It's transferable everywhere. And you, you can see it just by the fact that there are different types of temporary use, not only in Europe, but all over the world. Um, from extremely short-term, like, one-day events up to like collective events that are squatting buildings for like 10 years. Um, so I think this increase in the number of projects globally, as well as the, the typology of the projects, um, and also the research. I mean, there's um, one German researcher, Honig, uh, Thomas Honig, based in Berlin, who's looked at uh, not temporary use, but just the research and documentation on temporary use as a discourse, um, and how it's a social innovation in itself. So just the, the sheer amount of attention looking at temperatures shows that it's, it's, it's here to stay. quick summary of what you think you're learning from these case studies and, and what the implications are. That's a very long question. No. And maybe like three three word summary of temporary uses. Three word summary. Temporary uses and the implications. Um, number one is urgency. Mm -hmm. um, urgency uh, because that I think is what uh, that is what will help users come together to essentially get themselves organized and um, figure out how to actually uh, justify their case with um, the municipalities, the public administrations. Um, so urgency, um, number two, I think it's permanent. Temporary use is here to stay. And I would also say that um, it's, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's just sensible. Um, yeah. It's sensible because of how it actually benefits communities, and it's sensible in terms of taking advantage of just unused space. Mm -hmm. So when it, when you want to think about efficient, efficient urban planning, temporary use is sensible. So it doesn't make sense to try to kick them out. Yeah, and it does contradict, uh, I guess, planning orthodoxy, but For it, sure. it sort of meets some of the other meta goals of planning which include efficiency well I think it just compli it complicates planning um, mm -hmm. and planning is you know complex enough already with bureaucracies and, and the whole politics that mm -hmm. the political dynamics and other dynamics that are behind it 
Um, but it's just a, this other extra level of management that exists. But we shouldn't abandon it. Awesome. So thank you very much for talking to with, with me and for putting up with we had the wasp visitor before and, and then we had some technical issues with the recording device but we got there and thanks again it was fun um, and I hope you guys enjoyed the chat and we are all Detroit we are all Detroit we will all be destroyed we will all be unemployed all Detroit Our stories are embroiled We will be reborn One morning in Detroit We will all foreclose A mix of fading fast empire and